Welcome to Coffeehouse. The not-so-lovingly dubbed Nerd Jesus by Bill Burr, Steve Jobs, was one of the most influential visionaries of the modern world, instrumental in the advancement of our contemporary tech. He was a sharp edge on a round planet, and we read a book about him. This is the exclusive biography. It's actually in the title. That's the subtitle. Steve Jobs, the exclusive biography by Walter Isaacson is what we read. Spoiler alert, it was published after the man's death. But as always, we will go through the contents of this behemoth, do an analysis, and then we will talk about some big picture stuff to try to wrap it into a broader understanding of what we ought to be doing in the world. So here we go, the contents. So something that would factor prominently in Steve Jobs' life throughout his life, whether he liked to admit it or not, is the fact that he was adopted. And there are some curious circumstances around his adoption. His biological parents demanded that the, the people who would end up adopting him had to be college graduates. So the original family that was supposed to adopt Steve Jobs, at the last minute, they decided they wanted a girl instead of a boy. So he got knocked to the side. And the people who ended up adopting him were not college graduates. One person who knew Jobs said that this left Jobs full of broken glass. And there is a, an ever-present theme of abandonment throughout his life. He abandoned his own daughter at first, Lisa. And this would be something that seems like it's an important aspect of his character that comes up again and again. His father, his adoptive father, fixed cars and they would go to these junkyard trips. And this is, these were very important trips because Steve, the young Steve, got to see how people would haggle over prices at the most fundamental level. So these are all the various smallest parts of a, of a car when you're trying to fix these things. And he would develop this kind of understanding of the way haggling works for each piece of something that's as complex as a car. When he went to school, he was bored at school. He would engage in these pranks. There was one time that he and his friends, they convinced everybody to give them their bike lock combos. And then they went around mixing up all the bike locks. So they were all on the, so they were all on the wrong bikes. And there was one that got a little extreme. Apparently they placed some kind of a bomb under a teacher and the teacher subsequently developed a nervous twitch. And that's when people realized it was a little much. They tried to do extra things to keep him occupied. Like at one point, they gave him this book of problems, and if he finished the book of problems, he'd get a lollipop and $5. Eventually, over time, he would, he would get good at the problems and just want to do them for no reward whatsoever. He ended up being bullied when he was in this particular school, and he demanded a new school, and it required the family to relocate and buy a new house. And In the new house, he used speakers to make microphones throughout the house so he could hear what everybody was saying throughout the house. So he wasn't an especially easy child to deal with. Then we have his growth period and early instances of his interest in the marriage between art and electronics, so even literature at the time. But he meets Steve Wozniak, whose father was an engineer, and he also did pranks. Apparently he was arrested at one point and was able to electrify the bars. I don't know if any of these are apocryphal, but it sounds pretty awesome. Both Steves loved music, absolutely loved music, and Woz was the technical wizard and Steve was, you know, the talker and the salesman. And early on, they designed, Waz had technically designed this blue box that was used frequencies, sound frequencies, to make free international calls. And then Steve decided that they were going to start manufacturing these and sell the things. It didn't last especially long, but it was the first step on their partnership to, to get into things that are more technical. Steve went to, this is Jobs, went to Reed College for a little bit where he had the hippie lifestyle, which would be uh, an important part of his early professional career. And he undertook Zen Buddhism. Uh, they played that game Kriegspiel, is that what it's called? Where it's like chess, except you don't get to look at the board, something like that. 
He read around this time a book called Diet for a Small Planet. It was a, a big book that was kind of launched the vegetarian revolution that we're still feeling the effects of today. He swore off meat at the time. And one of the things about uh, vegetarianism is actually that people who have a high level of disgust just in general, so they feel disgust, are much more likely to be vegetarians as opposed to some kind of a, you know, one thing that humans do obviously all the time is that they rationalize the kinds of intuitive things that they want to do. And when it comes to vegetarianism, that seems to be one of the major factors is that people who generally feel a high disgust are the ones who are going to become vegetarians vegetarians. But so he did at this point in his life, and he would, throughout his life, he would repeat these extreme diets, and they would cause problems on a semi-regular basis. And then we get introduced to one of the most important aspects of Steve Jobs, and that's the reality distortion field. He had this salesman-like ability to distort reality around people who he wanted to do something or accomplish something. And sometimes this was used for tremendous good and advancement, and sometimes it was a very bad thing. So ultimately, Reed College was expensive, and he dropped out, and he would audit classes. He was allowed to audit a bunch of the classes. He did one class on calligraphy that he absolutely loved that was very important to him long term. And then he just uh, stomped his way into Atari and demanded a job, and it worked. He got a job at Atari. Then things start rolling. So we have uh, the development of the Apple One. So you have Wozniak. Again, he was the technical one. He decided he was the one who said that they needed to connect the keyboard and monitor. And he was the first one to type a letter on a screen in 1975. So this is right at the very beginning of the computer revolution. And Apple itself was born around this time. And they considered other names, considered names like Executech and Matrix and Personal Computers Inc. were other ones. But Jobs said that the name should be Apple, and one of the reasons for doing that was that it would place them ahead of Atari in the phone book. So the quaint things that you had to think about at that time. So Jobs, when Woz and Jobs were working on this, and they offered it to HP, and HP, that's where Woz worked at the time, Wozniak, and they declined. There was another, there was a third person who was involved in the original partnership of Apple. His name is Wayne. And he withdrew from the partnership early on because he just didn't want to have to deal with it. He had a 10% stake in it. And he got two payments, one payment for $800 and one payment for $1,500. If he had just held on to his shares at the time, then his stake in the company would have been worth $2 billion. The author talked to this person, uh, you know, later on, and the guy said he didn't have regrets. But that's, that's a pretty big uh, loss on, on that one. Then you get Apple II and Apple III. Apple III was a flop, but then you start having the development of the graphical user interface and the bitmap. And the GUI was huge. It was a major aspect of early computer design that made it accessible to people. And you would see this different take on electronics that would try to marry art and electronics. You would see this come up again and again. It's kind of the, one of the most important aspects of the way that they thought about technology. And I was, you know, when I originally heard Bill Burr's bit about Steve Jobs, you know, I had followed Apple, I had seen him on stage and do all the presentations and stuff. I didn't know how instrumental he was in the development of any of this stuff. But my God, was he directly involved in some of the most important decisions in the history of computer technology. It's amazing. But some of his decisions were absolutely horrendous. So it's incredible. It's incredible, the spectrum. 
They started working with Xerox Park around this time, and there were some ideas that, that would come around that we take for granted now, but things like putting one window over another, like on my Mac right now, you have a bit of a shadow, and you have the, the windows, they act like they're on top of each other, so you can put one over the other, you can click on one, and it'll pop to the front. That's not something that's necessarily obvious, you know, that's something they had to work on and figure out. Uh, the use of a white screen instead of a, a black screen, creating a cheap mouse. Uh, they created a cheap mouse around this time. But so uh, finally they get to go public and Jobs himself makes uh, like $200 million on this deal. And this one he finally gets to spread his wings. Uh, but there were a lot of internal political tensions. You know, as it gets bigger, more people become involved and there are more interests at stake. So you have the development of the Macintosh. Uh, somebody named Raskin decided on the on the Mac, on the Mac name. Jobs wanted to name it Bicycle. He wanted to call the Mac Bicycle. That was the name that he wanted for it. Uh, but around this time, too, Wozniak crashed. And after the crash, he had amnesia. So he decided to take time off of dealing with Apple. But there were all these internal tensions related to ha who had the authority and what people were going to do, especially at this time when you have the Macintosh versus the Lisa projects. So uh, Jobs got kicked off of the Lisa project and fought his way onto the Mac project. And then it, become, it became an issue because they started competing with each other. But the president of the company had a, uh, these ailments at the time and a figurehead replaced him. So it gave Jobs a lot more latitude in what he could do when it came to the company. So throughout this process, he uses the reality distortion field, and it apparently wears off when he's not around. He has to be there. When he's there, he can be incredibly intoxicating, but when he's not, then it, it tends to wear off. But often, the reality distortion field would lead to changes in reality, and the author makes the point of referencing Nietzsche and the will to power and the idea of the ubermensch. Even though Jobs didn't really read Nietzsche, <laughs> this was something that was really akin to the way that Jobs approached problems. And to Jobs, everything was a binary. You were either completely enlightened or a complete asshole. Your idea was either brilliant or it was trash. That's how he looked at the world and the way that it functioned. And sometimes a number of employees recounted times when they would have a new idea and they would bring it to Jobs. He would call it completely stupid and ridiculous, get rid of it. And then he'd come back a week later and present it to them as his own. With no self-effacement, <laughs> he would just present the idea as if he had come up with it. And a lot of the people just had to deal with it. They just had to accept it and say that, well, that's what he does. There was one instance to illustrate the kind of way that he worked where the boot up time, he said, was taking too long. And he said that, you know, try to cut it down by 10 seconds. Let's try to get down 10 seconds for the boot up time. And the engineers are like, why do we have to worry so much about 10 seconds? And then Jobs went through this calculation. If you have 5 million people with this computer times 10 seconds, you're going to save several lifetimes of time just doing that. And they eventually did it. They, you know, they put the work in and got it done. But the point for Jobs was to do the greatest thing possible. That's, that's it. It wasn't about the money. It wasn't about something else or winning awards or something. It was trying to do the greatest thing possible. When it came to his design philosophy, he was uh, Bauhaus-inspired. Vandero means Vandero's. Apparently, the less is more idea uh, was very important to him. The clean and simple approach to art. And you can see that, obviously, through all the technology that they came out with. He was attracted to the Japanese style, and I was just, I watched a few documentaries, and we got some books on Bauhaus, and it's really interesting, but Zen Buddhism, you know, that was a very important part of him, but there's one point where there was a board on, like, the inside, or, like, the wood back on a dresser. He would be really annoyed if the wood back on a dresser was ugly, even though nobody would see it. That was something that really bo bothered him. 
And Jobs had this whole widget approach, and obviously anybody who knows anything about Apple, that's what they know about it, is that they control every aspect of what goes on with their hardware and software. I mean, most recently, since they went to their own proprietary chips, I mean, that really came to fruition. But even historically, they were trying to do as much as they could in-house. That's something that Elon Musk does, too. Instead of, uh, you know, getting parts from various companies, they control everything instead of Microsoft, which had a, a very different approach to it. So anyway, the company is moving along. They launched Lisa in 1983. This came out before the Mac, the Mac that Jobs was working on at the time. And Jobs was supposed to be selling the Lisa around 1983, but he would mention the Mac in interviews. So what happened was that became a kiss of death for the Lisa because everybody would be waiting on, okay, what's going to happen with the Mac? Around this time, I remember there was this vivid description of how he met with uh, this guy Scully from Pepsi. He was a Pepsi executive, and he wanted him to come work for Apple. And there was this whole lengthy process we were trying to get him to come over. And he said, you know, you're perfect. You need to come over to Apple. And, and there would be this seduction reality distortion effect, which ended up not working out well for either one of them. But Jobs would be very capable of manipulating people in these situations. Uh, their first disagreement was the pricing on the Mac, where Scully wanted to raise the price because of the cost of the components and manufacturing and everything. And Jobs said, no, we can't get into that market, that part of the market, because it'll leave too much space for Microsoft uh, to take more market share. And then around this time, you have the 1984 ad, and everybody probably remembers that, the 1984 ad based on the book 1984 by George Orwell. I didn't know, but it was directed by Ridley Scott, and it was played during the Super Bowl, but it was a huge smash hit. Anybody who doesn't know what it is, it, uh, it's this dystopian future where this uh, you have you know Big Brother up on the screen and everybody in their drab clothes, and this woman comes up with a sledgehammer and throws it into the screen. But it was it was a huge thing, and it redirected what Apple meant relative to the other computer companies. And remember, computers at this time are a completely brand new thing. People don't really know what their relationship with a computer is supposed to be. So that's what Jobs was really interested in, is what relationship do people, or should people have, with their computer? What can a computer do, and what can it mean to people who are trying to use it? Because it had been this kind of niche thing for people who are doing very technical work, but he wanted to broaden it out and say that, look, you can be counter-cultural, especially after the 60s. You can be counter-cultural and have a computer. It can be something that means something more than what you think it means. So there were a whole bunch of problems around this time, but he eventually resigns from, from Apple because of a number of bureaucratic issues, because there, there were a number of problems. And so he resigns, he starts a new company where he would have a bunch of brilliant failures. The company was called Next. And I absolutely, I looked at the Next logo and some aspects of the company uh, because he hired this really expensive logo designer and the logo designer said, I will only make one logo, that's how important I am. And so the guy does, but I did not like the logo. I thought it didn't look great. It was based on the cube idea because everything was going to be a perfect cube, the computer was. But I did not like how it looked at all. They apparently went through like 600,000 molds trying to make this. He made sure that the screws themselves had expensive plating, the ones that would be on the inside. And it had to be matte black on the inside too. And it was October of 1988 when you had the launch of Next. But then, not to be resting on his laurels, uh, he also met one John Lasseter, the now-disgraced head of Pixar, who also worked at Disney. But he was working at Disney at the time, and he wanted to bring Star Wars-quality like storytelling and filmmaking to animation. And then he showed Luxo Jr., you know, it was the first Pixar short. He showed it to Jobs, and Jobs was blown away. He loved the, the marriage, again, of the artistic creativity and technology. 
and then he heard the idea for Toy Story from John Lasseter and Jobs said just right there he said he would provide the money to be able to create this thing and then another short tin toy won the Oscar and Disney started taking an interest in Pixar. Jobs had invested about $50 million, half of what he had made, from Apple into Pixar to try to get this thing going. Personally, he was he was dating him at uh, the singer Joan Baez, and they dated, they both loved Bob Dylan. He, would, he met his biological sister, and there was this really absolutely insane circumstance where his biological sister said that she had found their biological father. And that they learned that he owned a bunch of restaurants and he had this one prominent restaurant in California at one time. And when she talked to him, their biological father, he said that a bunch of tech guys used to come in there. And he recounted that even one of the tech guys was Steve Jobs because Jobs was well-known, getting to the point of well-known at the time. So he just recounted, oh yeah, Steve Jobs even came in. And he said that Jobs was a nice guy, he was a good tipper. And his biological sister relayed this information to Steve Jobs and Jobs said he didn't want to meet his biological father. He didn't even want to do that. But how crazy is it? <laughs> You'd be owning a restaurant, your biological son comes in, you meet him. He happens to be this incredibly prominent tech revolutionary and you don't even know that fact. But he meets Lorraine Powell. Uh, Lorraine Powell Jobs is one of a very, very rich person and supports a bunch of really extreme democratic political issues now. He met her around this time and, you know, they took to each other and they would get married and stay married all the way to his death. So you have some more stuff going on between Disney and Pixar. Once you have Toy Story come out, it was clear that there was something very <laughs> uh, substantial going on here. But May 1991, they had this deal that was heavily in Disney's favor to fund the movies that were coming out on behalf of Pixar. One of the biggest things was that they were they maintained the rights to the characters in the movies that Pixar would make. But Pixar didn't have the money, so they, they needed the money, so they accepted the deal in May 1991. And then when they were designing Toy Story, I didn't know anything about any of this stuff, but they kept pushing for an edgier movie. So these were the people at Disney. They kept pushing Woody to get meaner and edgier, and he was supposed to be more of a jerk to the rest of the of the toys. And it got so bad that eventually they ordered production stopped. Uh, and Pixar said, this isn't their movie, and we can't do anything with this. It's just, it's too dark. It's not good. It's not worth watching. Jobs was little involved through this process. He just wanted to go public right away that, with Pixar as one of his biggest things. But eventually there were some compromises between the two companies and Toy Story would come out and become the top grossing film of the year. And Jobs had, I think, 80% of the company when Toy Story came out. So it was just worth billions. They had a successful IPO and they just didn't need Disney as much now. But they had a three-pick deal. And Disney, like I said, had rights to the characters. So then they go through this whole renegotiation now related to what the relationship would be between Disney and Pixar at the urging of Jobs because he realized how much more they could do now. And then Pixar would go on, obviously, to have 10 hits in a row. They just knocked it out of the park, just 10 in a row. And he renegotiated all this stuff to have uh, more of the profits and do this co-branding thing and all this stuff. So anyway, uh, one of this, I mean, all the negotiations, the step-by-step -step negotiations aspects of, of the Disney Pixar stuff, I loved that. I thought it was so interesting to see how that happened. So then we get the next computer, 1988, and it began to fail. Next was never really going anywhere. And later, Jobs would say that in the mid-90s that innovation had ceased and that Windows had won with an inferior product. This Windows 95 coming out, you know, mid-90s. And Microsoft just stole the graphical user interface, the, G the GUI, after Apple created it. And so uh, Jobs got Apple to buy Next, and Gates was pissed about it. He was not happy about it. 
So we are 20 some odd minutes into this, and yeah, we're only at about a halfway point. So we're going to do this. So at this point, Jobs is not at Apple. He'd been kicked out. He went to a new company. Pixar had taken off, and Apple is not doing well. So we're going to leave it there. We're going to get this one edited and put up, and then we'll do a part two related to to Steve Jobs, the exclusive biography by Walter Isaacson. We'll have that coming up next. But I hope all is well. Like I said, book coming up. I will let you know. I'll put it in the description. We'll talk about it at some point. But I hope all is well. I will see you on the next one. All right, bye. <laughs> Thank you.